0: Brought to you by Penguin. I suspect I'll probably leave academia sooner rather than later. Is because something starts because you're going
1: to start a rap career.
0: <laughs> well, no, that wasn't exactly where I was going. But maybe, maybe that's the way. Maybe, maybe that's the retirement plan. <laughs> Hello and
1: welcome to the award-winning Penguin Podcast with me, Nihal Arthanaika. Here is where we take a deep dive into how some of the world's leading authors and thinkers get inspired. Our guests choose a collection of objects which have ignited their creativity and we quite simply explore why. My guest today is a professor of black studies at Birmingham City University and developed Europe's first black studies undergraduate degree. He's also the director of the Centre for Critical Social Research and co-chair of the Black Studies Association. His latest book, The New Age of Empire, takes a look at how racism and colonialism still rule the world today. So, without any further ado, my esteemed guest today is Professor Kayendi Andrews. Kayendi, welcome. Hi,
0: it's great to be here. I don't usually use Professor Andrews, though. It sounds weird.
1: Yeah, that's quite interesting because I, I always insist because I feel that, it's so difficult to become a professor, a surgeon, a doctor yeah. that it's, it, it has worth to say. And, you know, you are in a select band, in some ways, unfortunately, <laughs> of people of colour
0: who are professors in our academic institutions. Isn't that true? Uh, yeah, there's, I'm one of 0.68% of uh, the professoriate who are black in the United Kingdom, which is 140 people out of 21,000 professors so it 's pretty select I think
1: I mean maybe it would be pompous of you to insist on being called Professor Andrews, but why why is it that you 're not used to being called Professor Andrews when you are you know it's it's such a a representation of progress, but also as you pointed out, in the percentage
0: of how far we have to go um yeah i 'm not entirely sure it 's progress, and I know what I took to get to be professor and it, it wasn't. It, it's not the kind of things which I rate personally. So you know, I had to work in a university. I had to write for academics. I had to talk to other academics. And the, the university is like this kind of really white bubble where the achievements within it don't really match anything outside of it. So it's kind of like OBE, MB. I, like I forgot one of them. I wouldn't. I wouldn't ever use one of them. <laughs> Professor is a. It's a really problematic title because the institutions are really white, and when they give out these accolades. I'm not sure we should give them the credit. Although, like I said, I get paid. Uh, I get paid quite well, and it's good for me. I'm just not sure it's. <laughs> I'm not sure it's that beneficial more generally.
1: When, as you were growing up, you rejected your blackness, whether it be physical or cultural, how has that shaped who you are today?
0: Um, yes. Yeah, so when I was, so when I was what secondary school. So like I said, I, my, both my parents uh, were heavily involved in black activism in the UK. My mum. Uh, worked for the Commission for Racial Equality for years and years and years. And that's how she met my dad, who... He um, thought she might be a spy. <laughs> yeah, he thought she might be a spy. That was actually their first meeting, because he was in a <laughs> um, grassroots organisation, a Rambi organisation. And as one of my mum's roles was to go around and talk to different groups. And um, yeah, they thought, generally thought she was a spy for the state. Um, obviously worked out well in the end They had three children yes. <laughs> um, but so I know how I, I, I grew up so all the books house, the stuff I, I volunteered at the Harriet Tubman bookshop so I had a very black like educational upbringing but generally when you get to like teenage you start to reject stuff that your parents do so partly it was just that like my dad and my mum were quite black and I was rejected that but it was more than that because when I went to the secondary school um, I went to a school where there was probably predominantly white but there was a big chunk of um, black kids and Asian kids who, who came so when I get into this school though but the, the racial lies were so clear like from day one and everybody kind of acted this kind of called a self-fulfilling prophecy It's like if you're going to be good you in my 11 year old head it was if I want to do well in school I have to hang around with white kids act white be white etc and just totally reject the black kids that's how I saw it at 11 and so I caused a massive identity crisis where I just we did all white stuff all the time to the point where I yeah, things like I hated my hair, I listened to country music. It was just, it was, it was a dark yeah. time. Yeah. I, we were, we
1: were, I was going to do a little segment within this podcast of, Music Anonymous, where people of colour come and admit the musical disasters <laughs> that they have had,
0: and uh, and Country and Western was certainly one of yours, wasn't it? Uh, definitely. But never no, for no, one What about albums I bought was that Hanson Um That 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 was yeah. This wow. was a, was a dark time. Dark wow. Time. <laughs> <laughs> that <was> wow. <laughs> I, I, that I've
1: not read anywhere. That's been <laughs> yeah. I feel there's a world exclusive now. The exclusive Um yeah. by Hanson.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Not just the, song, I mean, you... the album, the whole album, It wasn't just like the single. The, <laughs> the, um, the <laughs> yeah but I, but I don't even I couldn't, I couldn't even name one other than Umba obviously, because it was so popular yes of course. But, um, but yeah no it was it was. Like I said it was but I, like, actually when I did my psychology degree and my dissertation was actually on because I got called a, I can you even say this nowadays in the way that the politically correct language but I got called a banty bar coconut yeah, yeah, chuck but it was true like I can't like, if I look back and say about at what 11 to 14 it was 100% the case and it was deeply problematic and I think a lot of people go through that because the institutions that we work in kind of suggest that that's a, a way to go right like you should conform and they're defined by whiteness and so when I've uh, my, my actual psychology dissertation, because I I kind of well, I went to South Africa I read some books I mean I started reading books because I have all these books in my house I think the first book black book I read from the shelf was it's a book by Stotley Carmichael where he looks ridiculous on the front cover Black Power to Pan-Africanism Stoutley Speaks and he's got this funny little afro and he's holding a gun over his head and he looks he looks ridiculous. So I actually only picked up the book because he looked ridiculous. And I was I think, about 16 probably. And then I read the book and it completely changed it. Like, that just, from reading that and then I read Malcolm and I think I read Asasha Corsi's autobiography and started listening to hip hop and, and this is a completely different, just the the snow, what Malcolm X calls it like a snow falling off a roof. And it really was like that. And then I, went, I had the opportunity to go to South Africa um, on like a, they used to do this voluntary service overseas thing where you could for six months and it was really cheap. Half of the people were from like Black South Africans and half of them were British. And we spent half the time in Wrexham, of all places which wow uh, th- yeah rexham that, that was that was that dire. wasn't
1: going to help you reconnect with your blackness <laughs> yeah. was
0: it well, i think it did it for sure shook me into reality <laughs> <laughs> um, and, then, and um, that's and an then extreme we, way of getting you to reconnect <laughs> with your blackness i know should we just send everybody to rexham it be fine um and then i went to uh we went to uh, a little village in uh, Pumalanga province in uh was about two hours away from Johannesburg, as well doing um like we we're rebuilding the school, doing HIV/AIDS workshops and stuff like that. And and I came back from there. I just literally like a hundred percent never went back. I haven't really spoke to my friends anymore. It's really straight. Like I still live in the same area, basically, and i was still bumping to people like in the shops. But like since that age, probably eight I was at like eighteen, completely changed. Just completely walked away and just did. Like, it's like a like two different people. Like most people who do be at school would be shocked. Are shocked when I see them wow. when they know what I do now.
1: Well, maybe if. Hanson tour again. You can all come back together <laughs> for a reunion. Um, let's go to your first object, uh, KND, and it's uh, it's uh, Afrocomb. Uh,
0: yes, it is. Um, our Pacific Afro. have a lot of Afrocombs in my house, even though I don't have much hair most of the time. Um, but the Afrocombs is important because my mum tells a story, and my mum is my mum is really the most radical person that I know. And that sounds strange given that she worked for the Commission for Racial Equality, which was very civil rights. She also worked in community. She was also like, you know, kind of had the job, but it was doing stuff on the grassroots. And actually had most of the books that I talk about. Most of those come from my mum. And she talks about a story where she, like they could basically get politically awakened in the sixties. And the Afro, like for men, it takes a long time to grow an Afro. One of the reasons I have short hair, it just takes a long time to grow your hair. Um, But black women, obviously they, they were just tying down their hair and going into work to conform, etc. And then one day her mum just says, no, nah, I'm not doing it anymore. And so you can imagine one day she goes into work with this hair straightened, a head straightened tight, tied behind it, um, tied down effectively. And the next day she just walks in with this massive effort. Her mum's effort was huge, like to the point where somebody on a train uh, moved out of the way <laughs> once so they could walk past it. That was the, my mum's afro was gigantic. And so if you just imagine what that, as somebody who works in white institutions and, I can't even imagine back then it would have been way worse. This is like the 60s. Um, just imagine the, the, the bravery it would take and the faces. The, 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 the people's faces as she walked in must have been, must have been great. That's one, that one time I wish I was a fly on the wall. Of
1: course. Let's go on to your next object. Tell us about this one because we've already covered your mother and the statement of her huge afro, as you said. This is something related to your father. Tell us about this.
0: Uh, this is the passport my dad's. So my dad just re- retired a couple of years ago and I was packing away his stuff for him and he had his bag in his bag. It's got his passport he travelled to the United Kingdom on. Uh, he came in 61, I want to say, before Jamaica was independent. And the passport is just a British passport. Like it's so, uh, like you look at it, it's just a British passport. It says Jamaica or Kingston on the front, but, but, it's, but it's really a British passport. So the reason why I use that object is a reminder that my dad was born in Britain. He wasn't born in Jamaica, but Jamaica didn't exist when my dad was born. It didn't exist uh, when he came here. And one of the really big problems that Britain has with understanding itself is it doesn't understand that Britain was only ever great as an empire. And his empire was vast. I'm a product of the British Empire, as everyone else is a product of the British Empire. If we understood that properly, we then really understand this problem differently. So one of the things I always get... I don't, know, I don't know, which is, I don't, I don't get annoyed by it anymore. But the idea that I'm an immigrant, I really, my family's not really an immigrant family because my family came from one part, of Brit- one part of Britain to another part of Britain. And my family in the Caribbean contributed just as much to the development and probably more than the development of the United Kingdom than people who were born on the British Isles. And so we shouldn't even, the idea that we're immigrants is, 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 is really insane, right? Because we're actually, we were part of the British nation until very recently. But this is an interesting
1: conversation I had with Satnam Sangera, the journalist recently, um, kindly about how difficult it is for some to accept that we have skin in the game, as it were, when discussing Britishness and issues with Britain's past. That somehow we are, if not usurpers, we're guests and we're being ungrateful.
0: I mean, it's 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 it is the definition of I don't know del- colonial delusion. The the this big separation between the the British Isles and the empire. This is it's just this massive problem that we think about, and this is why actually I do kind of push back on some of the. There is kind of been this thing of can we prove that black people were on the British Isles for like 600 years, it's completely irrelevant. Because when my family was it's a slave plantation in the Caribbean, guess what that was? That was the British Isles. So the idea that I have to pr- this idea of being on this island is the is the really the big sticking point. And even if you think about the war, so every time I go and talk to a Piers Morgan or do some, do some discussion about racism in Britain, I'll always get comments about, oh, well, look, the war, we fought for you, you should be grateful. Well, all of my family in the Caribbean were, were part of the war efforts. So I'm not sure exactly what I should be grateful for. Um, But there's a complete disconnect in the way that we think, well, well, the way that Britain thinks about that, that conversation. Why do you do that? Why do you go up against these
1: people when you know there'll be no resolution? You won't persuade them. They certainly won't persuade you of anything. And yeah, it makes for great entertainment, I guess.
0: But why do you do it? so what I actually quite enjoy winding them up because I don't take it seriously I think the key thing is I don't take it seriously well they're so. triggered quite easily I mean they call <laughs> I mean, you Snowflake <laughs> but they're actually
1: triggered incredibly
0: easily yeah I mean Piers Morgan's is so easy to wind up but I, so, so it's partly that but the the other reason why I keep going back on huh, is because I just walk literally I walk down the street and there'll be every, not every day but re- pretty regularly some black person will come to me and just say oh I saw you on uh, Piers Morgan give him hell go on go on prof and what's that's clear is that there's an audience, the mainstream audience, where this is just spectacle and they they like to froth at the mouth and et cetera, et cetera. But there's a there's a different audience there. People, black people watch this stuff, and they these are the conversations that they are having. And by me going on there and say and 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 give, you know, re- representing um, a different perspective, that gives that makes people feel empowered to do that, it gives them arguments they can use. So, yeah, I don't go for the the main audience. It's not the point. The point is their secondary audience, who I think do get a lot of it. So um, that's why I keep doing it.
1: Yeah. I've always said to people that there's, uh, if you're in the public eye and a person of colour, there's different stages. The first stage is hood famous. (laughs) And then there's community famous and then there's white famous. (laughs) And, and and you described the hood famous thing very, very well, yeah. essentially is what you're saying. That's
0: hood famous. Yeah. hood famous. And that's right for me. I don't I don't need no more than hood famous. Hood famous is, is good for me. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the other thing is, why why would we look? I would always, I'm a big argument. A big person says we need to get our own um, platforms which we put a website at called Make It Plain or a, uh, it's a lot of stuff I can't write for The Guardian, so we put it, we put it on that uh, platform. But the reality is we don't have the platform, so why would you turn down a platform? And I said I've, mo- I've connected with so many people, really interesting people, from that, that particular TV show, more than, more, more than any other thing. And at least, I mean, one thing you got to give credit to Good Morning Britain, they all talk about race all the time. And actually most of, <laughs> most of the shows don't address it at all.
1: <laughs> well, I guess they know it rates. Right. So, uh, um... How thick-skinned are you? How do you deal with that backlash?
0: Um, I, I don't take any of it seriously, and I, feel, I at first I try to avoid it. Uh, but actually, now what I do is, uh, me and my twelve-year-old daughter will sit through, will read through the comments, and if you read them in a uh, kind of like in a, in a whiny voice. <laughs> like go back to your old country it's really funny so we just spent we just spent an hour just going, going through the comments having a good laugh
1: that's amazing <laughs> so have not there's loads of people spewing out hate at you turning to go back home and you don't belong here. and you sit there with your 12 year old daughter and go and go oh why don't you go back to where you come from <laughs> yeah, dirty, yeah dirty dirty
0: and, and you it. do that that's a wow. coping mechanism. That's how ridiculous it is. Like well, the one thing that social media has done is, who are these people? I don't. Why would I care? What these random people think on social media? I, I, I really mean nothing to me at all. Although now, actually, if I don't get a reaction, I get quite upset because it's, okay. it's 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 sort well, of like I a mean... bit like it's a bit like fan mail, right? Like it's, 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 if you're taking time to to write me letters and I get letters as well, Sent to work. Um, but it's a bit. It's, it's the line between love and hate is quite is, is 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 quite thin. I think. Right, you deal with that
1: incredibly well. I'm going to do that. From now because I get I, I I get I go back to my battle rapper roots when I was a kid at school. And and I'm I'm like, okay, you think you've got lyrics? I've got lyrics. And I'll I'll go. And then I realize like I'm an hour and a half in. Yeah. And yeah, I may have felt good about myself because I publicly humiliated a few morons, <laughs> but I haven't really achieved anything. <laughs> S- sitting there with your daughter and going through it in a silly voice seems a far better way. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the
0: respect. It. That's the level of respect it deserves. Yeah,
1: no, I like that <laughs> a lot. I like that a lot. I'm stealing that. Uh, my wife may <laughs> not agree with <laughs> putting my 12 yeah. year old, my yeah. yeah. 11 year old. I've got an 11 year old. 11 year old. Okay, you have to
0: pre-screen them because there's some swear words and you know. Yeah, exactly. You, to, yeah, you can't, right. just, you yeah, can't yeah, just go no. straight to the raw material. you got it
1: right. Okay, cool. <laughs> okay, so you, you have to edit them right. out. Okay. Yeah. Talking of kids, your next object is a key ring. Tell us about this object, why you wanted to bring that to our attention today.
0: Um, yeah, so I've got a key ring that has uh, pictures of all my children. i got a 12-year-old daughter, a 7-year-old son, a 5-year-old son and a 3-year-old son. Wow. So I spend a lot of time with them. Actually, more so. Actually, not as much because now lockdown means that you're just in the house all the time. So I spent a lot more time with them actually the last 18 months. Um, and that's the point, right? That's, that's that's why we do the work for family it's just, it's a its a nice place to go to. And actually also a nice place to go to, one, to I can have jokes about the racist comments online. But also they keep you grounded because your kids don't care. Like the kids, can't, you can't have a big head if you've got, if you've got kids because they, really they really don't care. They're so sick of being on TV that they don't even care anymore. They're literally like, oh, you're on TV, huh? Yeah. okay. It's a nice grounding, <laughs> grounding phenomenon, I think.
1: And you guys are all writing a book together?
0: Uh, that is the plan. Um, they we're gonna do a what's it called? The book's called "Choose Your Liberation," which my last book. Before it's not a collection
1: movie. of racist tweets.
0: You've
1: been given. Not a <laughs> yeah, <compilation>. no. <laughs> it's
0: not compilation. Okay. audio. I'd book like to hear this. the audio book of that
1: in
0: your, <laughs> yeah. your silly voice. Yeah. Um, no, it's um, the so uh, my last book was "Back to Black: Retelling Black Radicalism for the 21st Century," yes. uh, which is so this is a kind of like the the, the New Age of Empire is the prequel. Where Back to Black's the more, what does revolution look like? How can we do it's this? It's very more positive. New Age of Empire is a bit, it's a different tone. It could be a bit, it's not really pessimistic, but it's kind of like, this is the problem. And it just ends like this is the problem um, because it's the prequel to Back to Black, which is, this is the solution. And so for Back to Black, what I wanted to do was, I'm trying to explain to my kids. So I do make a, they're the reason the kids, I do really try and get the kids involved, even though they're young, they come to talks. You know, I talk to them about stuff. Their first letter, all of them knew was X because Malcolm X is my absolute favourite. So I do make a, like, a big effort to try and educate them. And so I was thinking like, well, if this is important, I'm saying, look, black, black radicalism, what does that mean? Is there a way you can tell that to young people? And my kids really like Choose Your Own Adventure books. So the book is Choose Your Liberation, where we're basically working out a story where you end up with black radicalism at the end and the rest are dead ends, effectively. But yeah, they're all helping they're me do. We're doing that, uh, plotting out the, the story chart. Well,
1: look, now we have a clip from your new book, The New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World by Professor Kayandi Andrews. Now, this is from the opening of the chapter on genocide.
0: This fairy tale revolving around Columbus has some key elements that we need to dismiss. The first is that when Columbus mistakenly came across the Americas, when he was in fact looking for India, he discovered the land. Not only were there indigenous peoples across the Americas, there is clear evidence that Africans had visited and settled long before Columbus took his wrong turn. The Olmec civilization in Latin America made statues with clear African features at least 2,500 years before Columbus made his journey. Remains of Africans have also been found in the Olmec territory, along with Egyptian artefacts in the Americas. The finding of narcotics from the Americas in Egyptian mummies in 1992 was roundly criticised mostly because of the disbelief that Africans could have made it to the continent before Europeans. Despite a wealth of evidence, scholars have been deterred from tracing these connections for a fear of career suicide. It is only because of the conceit of Western ideas of supremacy that we ignore the history of global travel and interaction that far predates European exploration. In fact, prior to Columbus departing on his third voyage to the Americas, King Juan of Portugal had told him that Africans had a trade route to the region from Guinea, and Columbus confirmed this with the indigenous people when he arrived. The notion that Columbus made a discovery is based on the white supremacist logic of knowledge. If a people live in a place and there are no Europeans around to witness it, contrary to Western beliefs, they still exist.
1: That was A New Age of Empire, written and read by my guest today, Professor Kaindy Andrews. It is available to buy and download now. There's a link in the programme notes of this episode. Now, Kaindy, I'm a music guy. I know you're a music guy. So your next object is uh, something that's interesting to me because I once DJed in a car park in Nairobi just before this rap crew performed. Tell us about this this album let's
0: get free yeah so let's get free from dead prez um as i was saying like when i've coming out of my identity crisis this was one of the first what's one of the first Well, it's definitely one of the uh, one of the first hip-hop albums i really got a into... difference from hanson to be fair Yeah, so, i mean, could, could you I mean there's a major <laughs> scene change there <laughs> fact, i still play i still when i had my inaugural professorial lecture because you're supposed to have this lecture where it's all very uh stuffy and you get the vice chancellor introduces you and stuff like that. And I wanted to flip the whole thing. So I actually played the song I played. I actually had an intro when I walked in. So my university isn't particularly elite, but elite universities, you get like a procession where it's sometimes they even wear the gowns and it's like all classical and stuff. So I I flipped that round and said, actually, we're going to walk in with the students with my kids actually and my wife, and um, we, I played I'm an African for this Dead Prez album. Because this album, is, it's just a classic album. It's got I'm an African's the first track, I think. It's something about school, something about mass incarceration. It's just really, an edu- this more than any, more than most other things, this album educated me immensely. Uh, it has speeches from Chairman O'Malley on there. It's just a reminder that, that there's different ways to learn stuff, and actually hip-hop particularly has been really, really, really important. I mean, in fact, my daughter's name is Asata, after Asata Shakur. And I got that from Commons' track "A Song for Asata," which is like basically it takes bits out of Asad's autobiography and wraps them into the song. And this tells a really this really tells a story really really well. So yeah, hip hop has been really political and really useful. It's certainly, really useful for me and a lot of people, I think.
1: What do you think of its purpose now? Because you've spoken about the lyrics and a kind of. Reinforcement of negative stereotypes in certain lyricism. So what do you make of 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 that kind of... A lot of the music we hear today, and I, and I listen to a lot of grime and, and trap and because I've got a 13-year-old son, but it's just <laughs> I'm still a massive rap fan, so I still <laughs> yeah. listen to rap music, you know, as I'm sure you do. Yeah, I, mean, I do,
0: I do. Like what do nice you think work. of that? Um... <sighs> So I think partly it's a a shame because I think what happens and actually this is one of the reasons why I suspect I'll probably leave academia sooner rather than later, is because something what, starts off. Because you're <laughs> going to start a rap career. <laughs> well, no, that wasn't exactly where I was going. But maybe maybe that's the way. Maybe maybe that's the retirement plan.
1: <laughs> yeah, but sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah,
0: go on. Yeah, no. Um, no, in the About sense the that, darkness you know... The no, because things start off... So hip-hop starts... When hip-hop starts off, it's not commercial. There's a different... There's a, the sound of it's different, the... You could be really political in it because of who, what you're trying to do. And in similar ways in black studies, like, it's fine now, whatever. Like, we could start it off. We could, I could talk this radical stuff. But essentially, eventually, everything starts to get commodified. It starts to become something you can sell. And then it starts to change. And you can see that with hip-hop really, really clearly. It's now, what, hip-hop's probably the most commercial, one of the most commercially successful things. And then the audience shifts. So the audience for, you know, if you've got a bit like gangster rap, something like that, the audience for that. You know, black people listen to it, but that's not the audience. The audience is the mainstream audience. And they don't want the politics, no. right? The politics isn't 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 the point. So you can really see that you can and you can just it really is terrible in some ways. So like the kind of political hip hop that I grew up on, you grew up on, does it really exist anymore? It's really fringe, underground. In fact, one of the reasons I started listening to Grime, apart is from Grime, Kendrick, presumably, yeah, apart from people like apart Kendrick, from Kendrick some, Lamar. Yeah, there's some. I don't want to say it's none because there's definitely some. Um, but part of the reason I started listening to Grime is because... Dave is a classic example of a Dave, British MC. Kano. Yeah, Dave Kano. Kano's yeah, album, Kano. Um, the last album, was really, was yeah. really political. Wretch 3-2. Yeah, so you can see there's some stuff there, but the reason is, I mean, mostly, if not, is Grime isn't that progressive. I know, you know, but it sounds a bit more like old school hip-hop. Like the beat of it, the sound of it, the fact it's not—it's well, now becoming commercial. Um, so this is this is essentially what happens to anything that's good, right? It become it becomes commercial, it becomes something different, and that's what you're seeing. But there's always people who are going to be using that to get messages through, and still today, and even and even today, that, that is the case. But it is a, it is a shame to see the politics kind of drawn drawn out of it.
1: How do you prevent pro-blackness from being
0: anti-whiteness? I mean, the key is that. If he if he's genuinely pro-black, it's not, it doesn't care about whiteness. That's the way I always put it. Like, I just, I don't, I'm not anti-white. I just don't really think about white people. Like, in the way that I go about my life, not in a negative way or a positive way. Um, and this is actually something I got from my psychology, black psychology when I was in the States. I met William Cross, who did this model called Negro to Black Conversion Experiences in the 70s. And he has these stages, basically, where the first one is um, like uh, you're in a, pre-encounter like you're just going about your life you don't really know you're not really thinking about race then there's an encounter something happens and like the example he uses is the murder of um Martin Luther King people started to think oh wow, I've got to look differently and then once you have this encounter you start to really think about Latinx and race for the first time and guess what if you do when you do that you're gonna be anti-white there's almost no way you could st- if you would come into it and reading stuff and going through, like the stuff I had to read for this book like for the first time you read that I don't know how you would not be anti-white because it's awful right it's terrible so that's the first experience many people have is just really really anti-whiteness for legitimate reasons but then when you start to really go through it and to work through it and he calls it internalising and committing to the struggle you realise actually anti-whiteness is still about whiteness it's still about white people and that's the problem we need to decenter whiteness and pro-blackness really has nothing to do with white people in, a, in any way negative or positive true pro-blackness just doesn't really think about white people that was, that's the answer
1: What barriers do you think need to be overcome in order to bring that sense of pro-blackness to the forefront and to dilute, dissipate and ultimately destroy a kind of self-loathing?
0: So this is where education is really important, but we have to separate education from schooling. Uh, I I definitely would support in black curriculum, free black curriculum, should, the schools should do a much better job than they do. But the reality is you cannot rely on the schools to do that because that's not what schools do. Schools perpetuate the status quo, that's their job and the status quo is racism. So if you actually look at the the Black Power movement in Britain particularly, its real big contribution was alternative education. So my first book was about the Saturday school movement, which was basically schools that, because the schools were so bad in the 60s, parents just started saying and community groups said, look, we're just going to do ourselves. And they have a 50-year history. In a Akala's book, he talks about him going to this Pan-African Saturday school. And without the Pan-African Saturday school, there is no Akala the rapper because like that's where he got his education from. We had um, the bookshop movement, places like where I, where, I said where I volunteered when I was a kid, the Harriet Tubman bookshop, new Beacon books. You just had this space where you could just get this alternative education. And one of the things that we've lost, um, and this is again why I say I might leave the university at some point, one of the things we lost is, you know, 50, 40 years ago, 20, even now, like, but... When my dad was growing up, there is no possibility of him being a professor. That's not it's not open to him. And because of that, they went and created these alternative spaces. And we've kind of given way too much credit to trying to fix what's inside and not said, actually, well, why don't we just build what's outside? Because that can be a space where you really can get a different education that the, that the mainstream system just isn't going to give you. How much time do you think it's going to take
1: until, though, talk of not just empire, but... Also, achievements of people of colour are going to be folded in to the curriculum. You're an educator, but you're an educator at a point at which people choose to come and study with you, under you.
0: What about in mainstream primary and secondary schools? To be honest, if I'm 100% honest, I don't know. And it's the wrong question. We should be saying... A, this is going to sound harsh, but it's a Malcolm quote, and I haven't quoted Malcolm the whole time, so I, I think I need to throw a Malcolm X quoting here. It's all good, <laughs> but, you, know, you quoted Malcolm's... Hanson before you quoted <laughs> know, uh, Malcolm X. I mean, that's, oh, that's... Maybe, I, I'm falling back into the identity I did it, crisis? <laughs> 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 uh, what was I going to say? Yeah, why, yeah, what did Malcolm say? Why would you let the enemy educate your children? And if we see the schools as what they are which is something you need to survive you need to get through this is not me saying don't go to school don't go to university you should, you should get your qualifications I got my qualifications you need to get your qualifications but if we see that as something you just got to get through but actually education happens elsewhere then we just stop relying on the, school. the schools are, I, I don't think this, it's possible the schools will never do it. I, I don't know but we should be saying well actually can we do stuff alternatively outside like we have a long history of in the UK of doing that's a much better route to making sure that we have the education that we need
1: it is uh it's a it's a long battle you've t- said kindly that that your your acad- academic career has been very difficult painful affected your physical and mental health
0: is yes. it worth it is it worth it that's the know. question <laughs> that's a good question honestly i don't know cuz it is like i think people really underestimate like if, even if you get to my level, like I'm a professor, pretty of high standing, right, good reputation, et cetera, et cetera. I'm still black. I still get treated like a black. I still get treated like it the same way the university. And it's been I, like, one of the things I would say, like the, the black study stuff we do, so we started the course, what, 2017? So it's only, what, three, four years in terms of, like, the black studies work, the students, the external stuff, the writing, the for that's been great. It's been amazing. The internal stuff in the university, it's been awful. It's been absolutely horrendous. Underbind, bullied, harassed. Like, it's proper toll on mental health. These institutions are really hostile environments for black and brown people. And like, I'm going through that, and I know there's other people going through way worse than I'm going through, right? So I hear the question, is it worth it? That's why I say I don't know if I stayed it, because I, I honestly don't know if it is worth it. Um. Finally...
1: I'd like to ask you about a book that has been hugely inspirational.
0: There's actually no good Malcolm X book particularly, but there's loads of uh, the speeches, like the Ballot or the Bullet, Malcolm X speech, everybody should listen to the Ballot or the Bullet. That is one of the most the most important intellectual contributions of the 20th century. Just that speech by itself and Malcolm X generally, but that speech in particular. But I'd say if I was going to pick a book, like just thinking about growing up, Autobiography of a Sartre The Autobiography of a Sartre was really accessible the way it was told Asata is also someone who fled right she's such was um she basically was accused of killing a police officer which she didn't do but then she escaped from prison and now actually lives in cuba free so it's kind of got like a it's not really a happy ending because she's still like in exile but yeah the autobiography. is a really if anybody wants to start with a book because it's so accessible and it kind of connects you into that into the history i'd say that that's a really good book to start with
1: Now, before we go, don't forget to subscribe to the Penguin podcast, comment, rate, and most of all, share. Now, it helps us to make more of these so you can get to hang out with fascinating people like Professor Kayendi Andrews. You know what? Find us on your Alexa-enabled device. Kayendi, thank you so much for hanging out today. thank you. The Republic by Plato. In this classic Platonic dialogue, Socrates asks, what is goodness? What is reality? What is knowledge? Intended to be an inquiry into what is necessary for the creation of the perfect society, it is now one of the foundational texts in Western philosophy and an enlightening and enriching experience for any reader. We'll ask Hobart and the other poets not to be so angry if we draw a line through these verses and any others like them, not because they're not poetic or pleasant for ordinary people to listen to, but because the more poetic they are, the less they should be heard by those children and adults whom we need to be free and more afraid of slavery than of death. Yes, I I quite agree. The audiobook edition of The Republic is available to download now.